This is the Aider and a Better podcast with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we discuss the emotional roller coaster that is being a 49er fan after the Super Bowl with the recent hires in our opening statement. In our deep dive segment, we discuss Judge Neil Gorsuch, his recent appointment to the Supreme Court, or nomination rather, and we talk about the ideas of judicial independence that have come up since his nomination and his expression of concerns. In our last segment, we do our things. Let's do it. It was an interesting several days. We had the Super Bowl eight days ago, so we're recording today on Monday, February 13th. The Super Bowl happened not yesterday, but the previous Sunday. Yeah. And it it intertwined with the Niners because Kyle Shanahan, who's the Atlanta offensive coordinator, was the presumptive selection for the 49ers coach before the Super Bowl even occurred. So all Niners fans were watching the game knowing that Shanahan was their next head coach. It sounded like he was going to be hired during the playoffs, but they had to wait till the season was over to finalize things. Right. And so, you know, for me as a Niners fan, I grew up a Niners fan, uh, but my I'll have to admit that my allegiance to the Niners has been uh, diminished. Tested. Over, oh, it's been tested severely. <laughs> and it really was hard for me to get excited for the Niners after they fired Chip Kelly but then when word broke that they hired Shanahan and I got to watch Shanahan uh, call plays against the Green Bay Packers in the NFC title game and the, yeah. the Falcons score you know, on every possession, I, it got me pretty excited. And so I, I watched the Super Bowl with this excitement and then all of a sudden in the Super Bowl, the Falcons run off 21 straight points to start the game. They're up 21 nothing. And as a Niners fan, I'm thinking to myself, wow, we got the pick of the litter. And he's going to show up with juice. Yeah, show up with juice. He's got a. He's going to have a, literally a Super Bowl ring on his finger. Yeah, and is be able to have some pull when he shows up in that locker room. So everything is looking great, both for me as a Niners fan, and I think for most of the folks that I know who are watching the game, we're rooting for the Falcons. So it's twenty-one nothing, twenty-one three, twenty-eight three. All of America that voted against Trump and uh, was rooting against Trump is rejoicing. Yep. Shanahan looks like he's a stud, and then it just all falls apart. It was brutal. It was really brutal, and for me, it really was almost like a moment of PTSD. Um, <laughs> because what happened was, for those, I mean, I'm assuming those of us, those that are listening to our podcast, watched the game, Shanahan blew it. Uh, on Twitter and on the news media, Steve Young, Trent Dilfer, other people called what he did in the game coaching malpractice, that it was that bad. And what we're referring to in particular is that there's a drive after the Patriots made it 28-20. Falcons move the ball downfield. There's under four minutes to go in the game. All they need is a field goal to make it a two-possession game. And they get into field goal range. It's second and 11 at the 21-yard line. And instead of just running the ball, Shanahan chooses to pass. Matt Ryan gets sacked and the takes Falcons, a twelve yard loss. Yeah, twelve yard loss. Packers. I mean, the Falcons start going backwards. They end up having to punt, and then of course Brady takes it from there, drives the Patriots down ninety plus yards in regulation to tie the game, and then they win the game in overtime. Do you it, know what the field goal would have been if they just ran the ball into the just into the line of scrimmage? Yeah, if they ran, it would have been a forty yard field goal. And Matt Bryant, their kicker, is I think had missed one kick in that range all season. Yeah. And even me and my friends watching the game were saying they should just kneel. When Julio Jones made that catch on the sideline, we were saying they just need to kneel on the ball. Don't risk a fumble. Don't risk a sack. Don't risk a penalty. Just sit on the ball, kick yeah. the field goal. You win the game. And that one decision, plus some other decisions earlier in the game, really soured me on Shanahan and it brought back all of these memories of Niners terrible decision making over the years especially by Jed York and I started to do an inventory for myself so it goes back to when they fired Steve Mariucci after winning a playoff game they hire Dennis Erickson they hire they fire him they hire Mike Nolan they fire him they hire Mike Singletary they fire him and they finally land themselves a legitimate coach. Jim Harbaugh yep. takes them to the brink of the Super Bowl championship and about three NFC championships in a row. Right. And uh, four seasons in, Jed York thinks he can do better and lets Jim Harbaugh go, only to hire Jim Tom Sula. The only... guy who stands on the sled and yells, <laughs> Push! Yeah. The guy who stands he's on the sled yells, Push! He's a, a D line coach 
his entire career, but we're not getting enough push. Jed York thought he was getting the next Steve Kerr. That's right. He, oh man, do you yeah. remember that? He was because comparing... he's a first-time head coach, right? And he said, you know, Steve Kerr was a first-time head coach. And yeah, look, look where that went. And yeah. that didn't go anywhere. And then they fire Jim Tom Sula. They think, okay, we're going to write the ship. Yeah. They go out and hire Chip Kelly, which I'm pretty excited about because he's an innovative kind of fresh coach and it was kind of surprising he was let go by the eagles because they had a down year but they still had made a lot of progress right and then one year after that they let go chip kelly which to me is just not that chip kelly was a great coach yeah. but if you were gonna let him go after a year you shouldn't have hired him in the first place yeah if you're not going to give the guy three years right to kind of build the program so jed york has just completely lost my trust and then yep. this shanahan decision-making during the Super Bowl, like I said, it was like a moment of PTSD. And all these thoughts started flooding back in. Dennis Erickson was like back in my head all mm -hmm. of a sudden. Who do you think the Niners fans would boo more if they saw on a podium Roger Goodell or Jed York? Oh, Jed York. We have, I mean, we have no one. I don't know that we have anything to hold against Roger Goodell. I mean, the Patriots yeah. fans do. But yeah. uh, Jed York has taken this once proud franchise and just taking it to the dumps for the most part yeah there, there were three seasons in his whole in his family's tenure that mm -hmm. were legitimate and those are the three harbaugh years and how badly did the uh, trent balky strategy of drafting people to redshirt oh right work you, out i mean drafting people with torn acls just keep drafting people who won't get drafted <laughs> and then hiding them on the on the roster uh yeah well that's a lot it's a lot it goes back to that balky the Balky Chip Kelly issue is that they hired Chip Kelly along with Balky and then fire both a year later. They should have done this whole reset a year ago. This was yeah. a whole lost year and it, yeah. it was foreseeable. And so that this whole Shanahan thing, it really, for two reasons, it soured me as a Niners fan. And also I think all of America was really counting on the Falcons. They needed a little boost, right? Uh, in the, in the, in light of Donald Trump. And, and how publicly he was supporting the Patriots and how Bill Belichick wrote him that love letter. Right. I mean, yeah. I watched the interview with uh, Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump before the Super Bowl. And Donald Trump says that he's a fan of Robert Kraft, a fan of Bill Belichick. That's because they both wear those white collar, white cuff t-shirt. <laughs> And then he says, and Tom Brady's my friend. Yeah. And, and Tom Brady has never disavowed his friendship with Donald Trump, even to this day. And so I think that the majority of the anti-Trump establishment was really rooting for the Falcons and was hoping that the Falcons would be this kind of symbolic victory, a pushback against the Trump administration. And then all of a sudden, it all just came crumbling down with those Shanahan play calls. Yeah, but it was it was interesting. I heard that that he walked out of his own Super Bowl party when they were down the points. So that takes a little bit of the shine, yeah. you know, off of his uh, great comeback narrative. Right. So all respect to Brady. Yeah. I mean, he's a great quarter, great probably the, the greatest quarterback of all time. I have no respect. I have no lack of respect for him as a football player. But the connection to Trump, like that we talked about at the end of our last podcast, has taken that luster off of him. I mean, the over, I mean, I was at a party and there was one person rooting for the Patriots out of 20 people. I think this goes for a lot of teams that would sustain success. They're, they're upstarts, they're exciting to start, but once they start winning consistently, people just get tired of them and they want to see new... There's a, and the Warriors are kind of on the brink of that too mm -hmm. a little oh, bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the, the Warriors were on this upstart and then if they continue to sustain success, they're going to start being the villains of the NBA and then there'll be a new team that, that is that upstart. You know, I personally felt some of the pro-Atlanta, anti-New uh, England feel uh, because of the because of Donald Trump. I felt like, ah, oh, you know, let's stick it to him. But that's, I kind of felt badly for the New England players who are completely disassociated with that. Yeah. Right? Like all of the people who say that they're not going to be going to the White House, right. who probably feel very deeply in their bones in opposition to everything that this president stands for in terms of his acts of cruelty, and them getting kind of negative vibes directed to them. Right. You know? And so I know that I know it's a 53-man roster, yeah. right? And that there's, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, variation and I think that's starting to be clear and I mean if you also look at the game it's insanely entertaining game right yeah and then you look like you said Martellus Bennett 
Devin McCourty, I think Howie Long's son, Chris Long, Chris Long, has said that they're not going to the White House to visit with Donald Trump. And uh, that's much respect to them. And you're right. They, they are kind of lost in the shuffle in terms of, the, of our fandoms or our country's uh, selections. You know, one, one point someone made to me, uh, a colleague said, was it's really powerful that these folks aren't going to the, Super, or going, going to the White House to uh, accept the Super Bowl tradition of, of visiting with the president. But how powerful would it be for one of them or another one of their teammates to go to the White House and then utilize that stage to make some sort of statement or to confront, for lack of a better term, Donald Trump on his policies or on the administration to engage in some sort of peaceful gesture that would create a, a moment. Right. As opposed to not being there. Right. And I, yeah. I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. I, th- I think that that would be a, another way to make a statement. And I think the fact that Chris Long decided not to go is, is particularly important because, one, he's the son of a NFL Hall of Famer, Howie Long, who's on TV himself, Yeah. Uh, who's very well known. And then, two, they're white. Chris, Chris Long is white, and um, I think some of the articles that were uh, bandied about when Chris Long decided not to go was that the NFL, many of the NFL players, black players, were waiting for a, a white player to come out and join them in the you know post Colin Kaepernick movement against injustice and for uh, social awareness, things like that. And so Chris Long, in a symbolic way, is a very powerful. We'll uh, maybe in the show notes we'll post a link to an open letter to Chris Long in a newspaper that was calling on him specially, saying you've expressed some sympathy with Colin Kaepernick. You you've understood or been vocal about why this movement is an important movement. You were the right person mm. and an important person to join. Yeah, you know, he received the open letter and and it moved him to action. Mm. Uh, so cool. uh, we'll post a link to it. Uh, looping back to the 49ers. Yeah, I was gonna say. Let's, yeah. Let's um, do that. I, I mean, so you're, you, there's all these bad decisions. There's these back, you know, the backbreaker of firing Jim Harbaugh and then hiring Tom Sula, getting somebody apparently qualified to do something innovative, Chip Kelly, and then throwing him out. Right. Even after he kind of builds a lot of goodwill with the players. He had no apparent drama with the players the way yeah. that he had in Philadelphia. And now we have this new coach who, who looks good if you set aside the historic meltdown. Right. You know, the historic offensive meltdown in the Super Bowl. And so I, I was excited when they were in the Super Bowl. I partly wanted them to win because then Shanahan would come with that juice. But now I've kind of turned a little bit and I'm feeling more positive that he had this massive failure. You know, there's there's this idea that when you hire a coach, sometimes there's a benefit to hiring a coach who's failed before. Like Josh McDaniels, you know, I think you can treat his trip to Denver, you know, his time in Denver as overall not a success. And that's why he went back to the Patriots and then he learned from it. And Shanahan has not had that. Uh, he hasn't had a chance to be a head coach yet, but in all the places he's been or many of the places he's been, he's led them to a top 10 offense. Yeah. And he's had you know good players come with him and good relationships. And him having this adversity, I think is going to be a good thing. I'm going to remain hopeful. I do like John Lynch, although he's a new, yeah. new face too, never had any front office experience. So I will try to muster up some some uh, some fandom for them, and uh, maybe we'll talk about this more as we get more information. But it'll be interesting what happens with Colin Kaepernick, yeah. and I think this is a situation where he could succeed compared to where he was last year. You know, in terms of his situation last year, but he has to decide what he's going to do. Right? They didn't. Uh, Shanahan and Lynch didn't say that they were closing the door on him. And so um, we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah, I heard Lynch in an interview say something like, well, we'll have to see if he wants to stay here, too. You know, right. that, you know, kind of acknowledging that this is a bad situation for both sides. Right. Well, why don't we move on to the deep dive? The deep dive. President Trump has put forward his first nomination at the Supreme Court. A 10th Circuit Court of Appeal judge named Neil Gorsuch. Uh, we're using the pronunciation of Gorsuch from YouTube. Well, that was from Donald Trump's press conference, so he might be getting it wrong himself. But we'll, who knows if he even knows that his nominee's name's pronunciation. But yeah, we'll, we'll take it. We're, 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 uh, we don't want to butcher anybody's name, but uh, we're going to go with Neil Gorsuch. And uh, why don't we just start with, uh, you know, as, as public defenders, we are often looking at Supreme Court cases because they help us actually work in the courtroom. So there is a Supreme Court decision called Crawford 
where it requires live testimony, and that was from Justice Scalia. And what happened was that decision changed the way that we practice in an important way. It changed the requirements so that defendants really get to confront and cross-examine the witnesses against them because it required that the people come to open court. Uh, so Neil Gorsuch will probably be making a very significant impact when he gets to the Supreme Court, you know, assuming he does, and I, I think that's probably the right assumption, on criminal law. Like criminal law is a big piece of the portfolio for the Supreme Court. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the Supreme Court has a direct impact in our courtroom, our county courtrooms. Yeah. You know, you can have a Supreme Court decision come down one day and it will have a tangible, immediate impact the next in our in our courthouses. And like you mentioned on the issues of uh, what what the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses means, what the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures by police officers means. And that's where my focus has lied since law school. Uh, that's what prompted me to become a public defender in the first place was Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. What does it mean to be subject to an illegal search? What does it mean to be subject to an illegal uh, seizure by the, by the police and government? That's been my lens to Supreme Court justices. Yeah. I know many others out there have a number of different uh, topics that are important to them, whether it be abortion or campaign finance or voting rights, voting rights, whatever it might be. But as a public defender, as someone invested in criminal justice, my focus with the Supreme Court or my lens of the Supreme Court really comes down to criminal justice and our Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment rights. And so with that lens in mind, I had a moment, we, we shared some articles back and forth through the week, and there were some articles that uh, that discussed Gorsuch's record on the Fourth Amendment, and specifically um, where he's found that uh, searches were illegal. And, and, the, and that was actually really refreshing to me, was to see Gorsuch actually have a pretty strong record on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, and that included... Uh, suppressing evidence in a child pornography case where um, an AOL provider um, helped facilitate what ultimately was deemed to be an illegal search and the judge in his opinion or in the court's opinion suppressed that evidence. There was another opinion where the judge uh, uh, respected the rights of a property owner to put no trespassing signs on their property and extended what property is protected by the Fourth Amendment, uh, at least arguably compared to other judges. And so from my view, I'm actually pretty excited by Neil Gorsuch. It's one of the one, it's one of the few silver linings that I've taken from the Trump administration is Neil Gorsuch and his record on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah, and um, on the case you talked about, the Fourth Amendment case, it's called United States versus Carlos, C-A-R-L-O-S-S. And What's interesting about that is he was writing in dissent, which means his opinion about whether there was a search did not hold the day with the court, but he believed in his opinion so much as to write separately and to articulate his argument. And uh, they just released his Senate questionnaire, and we can post the link to that in the show notes, where he lists his most significant cases. And number two is United States versus Carlos, his dissent, uh, which is one where I think, I, I mean, this is an advocacy document, you know, his sure. survey front kind of fronting i believe in the fourth amendment if you have a no trespassing sign at kind of the perimeter of your property that means no trespassing and the fourth amendment's going to apply to entries right which is you know there's there are going to be live issues can uh, police search your cell phone has just been decided uh in a case called riley uh, where a unanimous court said that the fourth amendment applies to cell phone searches what uh, can we do with privacy and social media you know, there's going to be big fights about the Fourth Amendment. Right. And uh, on that point, I've, over the past couple of days, there was a news story of, of a NASA engineer who was detained at a, when he was coming to the country from abroad and had his uh, cell phone collected and was being pressured by uh, TSA agents or Border Patrol folks to turn over passwords for his phone. And a lot of questions have been bandied to me. My mom was asking me, other people were asking me, like, what are our rights at the, at the border or what are our rights when, we, when we're coming into the country? Yeah. And there's a lot of legal gray area there. It seems to be, uh, there seem to be very few constitutional protections available uh, when coming into the country, yeah. either by plane or by land. 
And it seems to me I take some solace if Neil Gorsuch is ultimately is ultimately confirmed as the uh, Supreme Court nominee. Um, it does seem that he has a track track record for honoring these rights, at least in a in a in a fair and thoughtful way, um, and seems to be pretty balanced on these issues. Um, in contrast, I did some cursory research of Merrick Garland, the yeah. Obama's nominee, uh, who I was not a fan of. He actually, and I don't, we can maybe cite this in our show notes, but I'm just remembering anecdotally that he had a relatively poor track record when it came to Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And um, even though many people wanted him confirmed because he was Obama's nominee, I personally wasn't a fan. I called him at the time on Twitter a DA in a robe. Merrick Garland was a former U.S. prosecutor, and it seemed like his judicial decision-making was was one of being a DA in a judicial robe, someone who ultimately would fall in favor of the government or of the prosecution. And Neil Gorsuch doesn't appear to be wedded to the prosecution mindset or the government mindset when it comes to these decision-making uh, processes. And I, you, you sent me a couple of opinions. One of the opinions that you sent me was, uh, I think, another dissent, or no, it was a concurrence, where he found that a person convicted of a crime where he has a prior felony conviction for a particular category of crimes would have to know that he has that prior uh, conviction for that for that prior crime. And he, Gorsuch, ultimately concurred with that opinion, upholding the conviction because of a precedent that was out there. But he still, like you said, took the time to write a concurrence to point out what he believed to be an injustice in this kind of procedural posture. Yeah, that case is called U.S. versus Gamez Perez. Uh, it's 66 F. 3rd. 1136. Uh, you can find all these cases in Google Scholar just by searching 10th Circuit opinions uh, for the name Gorsuch. It was interesting because it's like a felon in possession of a firearm. Right. Do you need to know that you have the firearm? You know, yeah. Like, so if somebody put a firearm in a bag and just handed it to you and you didn't know what was inside of it, you wouldn't be guilty of that crime. But the court applies knowledge to knowledge of the gun or, you know, knowledge of whatever the contraband it is, but they don't apply it to knowledge that you're a felon. Right. And there was some story where this gentleman, uh, he had gone through a sentencing and maybe his case would be reduced if he complied with everything he was supposed to comply with. So it was just like a little complicated uh, about whether the person actually knew uh, that he was a felon or not. And uh, the, the concurrence, I, I hope it's, a, uh, it's, it's hopeful, right? Yeah. Uh, because he's saying, look, the reasoning uh, that gets us to where we are is wrong. And I'm going to explain why I disagree with it. I think that knowledge should apply to everything, that you're a felon, that the gun is there. And if there's a defense there, it should be raised. But there's a precedent. There's a prior decision. And that prior decision, I'm going to follow because we don't just change the law when we think it's wrong. We have to kind of give some value to judicial stability. And, you know, when we're looking at uh, women's reproductive health, whether Roe v. Wade remains the law of the land, uh, the thing that's going to keep it in place is, uh, um, among other things, it, the fact that it's a precedent. Right. The fact that we have judicial stability. And it, when you had a case uh, that Sandra Day O'Connor decided called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right, which is, what, you know, was, were there going to be more abortion uh, restrictions? The court said, well, Roe is precedent. Right. So we, this isn't a uh, women's reproductive health case. It's a, it's a case about a guy uh, with some sort of weapon. Uh, but it, it tells us that even if he disagrees with the argument, there's been an instance where he decides the case differently than his reason because of precedent. And, and I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful about that. Yeah, and, and so from what you, what you provided to me and what's been out there on Gorsuch, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic and hopeful too. Like I said, it's a, it seems like a silver lining to the uh, Trump presidency thus far. Uh, but we'll see. You know, I don't know. Uh, having said that, I don't know his background on the death penalty, on the Eighth Amendment, cruel and un unusual punishment, things like that, because that's another frontier of criminal justice that is decided oftentimes by the Supreme Court is 
what is the appropriate mechanism for the, the death penalty, uh, when, should a death, what, when should an execution be stayed, all of those things. Um, so I don't know whether he will be an ally on that front. Um, but, uh, but overall, in terms of my criminal uh, jurisprudence lens of the Supreme Court, I, I actually endorse Gorsuch uh, more than I would have uh, endorsed Merrick Garland. Yeah. And one, one other thing, I guess it'll be a good point to transition here into the issue of judicial independence, is that while he's been making these rounds on Capitol Hill, uh, Neil Gorsuch, yeah. he was quoted as saying that uh, he found Donald Trump's um, diminishing of the judicial branch in the in the past few weeks as being demoralizing and disheartening. He didn't come out on record as saying that, but it, it was attributed to him by some uh, U.S. senators who said that in their conversations with Neil Gorsuch that he had those things to say about Donald Trump. And that really is, it can be telling because we as a country and as a community need Neil Gorsuch and our Supreme Court to be individually, I mean, I'm sorry, independent from our executive branch. I mean, we've talked about checks and balances and we've talked about the need for checks and balances when whatever part of the country's government is getting out of order and so even though Trump may be appointing Neil Gorsuch we need Neil Gorsuch or anyone else that takes uh, the Supreme Court bench to be able to stand up to what they find to be illegal Trump policies. Yeah the hard part about this whole disheartening thing is He's responding to a judge making an order uh, in, uh, for a temporary restraining order uh, of the uh, executive order, the Muslim ban, uh, the refugee ban. And uh, our, our president tweeted, the judge opens up our country to potential terrorists and others that do not have our best interests at heart. Bad people are very happy. That's an exclamation. exclamation point. And he says, just cannot believe a judge would put our country in such peril. If something happens, blame him and court system. People pouring in bad. Exclamation point. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is, I mean, if Gorsuch did not even, if he, if he said nothing about this, that's like a huge red flag. But these are disheartening and disturbing statements by the leader of, of the country and, you know, that the executive uh, against the judiciary. I mean, asserting that if something bad happens connected to a court, can you think about, you know, when uh, courts do things, when they give meaning to the Constitution that sometimes we don't agree with? You know, if they uh, say the First Amendment uh, allows you to march, sometimes folks with ideas that we find repugnant are going to be able to assemble and march. Uh, if uh, they say that you can't search a cell phone and find something that's abhorrent, right? Uh, sometimes a person who has uh, uh, contraband or, or something awful uh, that is rightly criminalized will be able to avoid punishment. You know, the, but that's what the courts do when they give meaning to our civil liberties. And uh, when you have a, a, a president saying this, of course, if Neil Gorsuch said, well, you know, it's just fine, or I have no comment. I mean, he did the absolute minimum going off the record, but telling the senators, you can speak on this, right? But just by saying that, I think he's Right. He'll, he'll be uh, appointed. Uh, and that's fine. But these are really disturbing tweets. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. And I, I do think that we I'm going to give him a little bit more credit than maybe you are, because he is, even if he said it off the record, it was attributed to him in, in, in the New York Times and across the country. Yeah. And he is standing up even in this moment where his nomination is still in the crosshairs to within within reason, he's standing up to the president that's a, that's appointed him. And so I appreciate I appreciate that. We'll see if it if that judicial independence remains within him uh, moving forward. And these tweets are terrible. The one thing that you you forgot to mention or a tweet that we we, we pulled up is uh, when the travel ban was initially uh, stayed by the ju the federal judge in the Washington District Court. Um, Donald Trump tweeted. The opinion of this so-called judge, which, is, which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned! Exclamation point. Yeah. Um, and so these tweets are really disturbing for the exact reasons that you just described. They're also disturbing because we need our judges in these 
in these crucial moments in our country's narrative, in our in these crossroad moments of our country, to be independent, to be our uh, the forebearers of our constitution, to be kind of our uh, sources of foresight and uh, and wisdom, as opposed to relying on emotion and um, hysteria, or being fearful. We don't we don't need judges being fearful, judges being fearful of of violence against them judges being fearful of backlash against them, either in the news media or being subject to some sort of recall or impeachment. Um, not to say that we, we leave judges to be you know, rogues at, you know, in their jobs, but we at the same time trust our judiciary to again be these forebearers of our constitution. But that is compromised when the president is saying that if something happens, blame him and the court system so if, if a terrorist, let's take it a step further, if a terrorist attack happens in the next couple weeks and someone takes this tweet from the president and does exactly what he says and blames that judge and attempts to threaten that judge or hurt that judge, that judge or the next judge is going to have that in the back of their mind when they're making their next decision. Is this yeah. going to sit well with the president? Is the president going to tweet about me when I make this decision? Is some lunatic going to come and show up at my house or threaten my family because I make this decision? We can't have, we as a free society and as a system of checks and balances can't have those things in play. Yeah, and you know, there's impartiality in the abstract. You know, we, I think we agree that it's important to have an independent judiciary, an impartial judiciary. But the, the reason this matters to how people's lives are kind of adjudicated. When, when you have a court, deciding whether somebody can come into the country, when you have a court deciding what kind of sentence to give a person, or whether to let a piece of evidence in, right? Whatever the decision is, we need it to be based on the law, right? We need it to be based on legal standards. We need the rulings to conform with the Eighth Amendment. We need, you know, an unlawful search to be called an unlawful search, uh, whatever it is, because this is how our, our basic liberties are given meaning. And if you have uh, every pressure that's exerted on that is dangerous, right? Every, every threat to an independent judiciary is a dangerous threat. There's not like good threats to the judiciary and bad <laughs> right. threats. All of them are bad. But this one is so direct and so um, distorted in its sense of responsibility. You know, uh, if something happens, who should be blamed? Right. Uh, in, in my book, if something happens, you know, you can blame the person who carried out the, the bad act. And you can do a look back and look at, like, where did this happen? You know, why was this person able to get in? You know, what sort of uh, thing took them to the place that they went? Why didn't we detect it? You know, you should be doing some self-criticism, you know, to for future prevention. But to say that, uh, you know, that the judge who makes a decision according to the law is morally blameworthy for some thing in the future it's it's so it's deranged right uh the the one thing that i would note is this tweet uh will hopefully re prevent the thing that he's suggesting from happening because if you know uh you know fingers crossed nothing nothing ever bad happens but when something bad happens he, and he'll come forward and say well we need to blame some judge in seattle uh, that's gonna. Everyone's gonna know how transparent and how weak that is because he's already kind of laid out his plan. Right, and uh, in a um, this 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 tweet, the tweet about so-called judges. I actually think it might ultimately benefit our jurisprudence in the long run because it does have that. It does create that potential danger I just described of inhibiting judges from doing the right thing. But it also might embolden them to do the right thing. I mean, it might actually rally the troops, the judicial troops, to come together and and stand up to the bullying of Donald Trump and say, look, we are going to now more than ever are going to preserve and honor our duties to the Constitution and our duties as judges. And we're going to kind of uh, come together in our ranks and really honor honor the judiciary as opposed to cowering in fear. In and when it comes to these borderline or not even borderline uh, legislations or executive orders, these judges are human beings. They're not going to like their integrities and their their entire careers called into question by Donald Trump. They're going to 
there's going to be some pushback from them to, again, to remind Trump and to remind our uh, communities that they are professionals and they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not at the whims of the president. One of the things in uh, Judge Gorsuch's uh, survey, his questionnaire, that I that kind of stood out to me was he has to talk about his organizations that he's affiliated with. And one of them is the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. And uh, they have a very uh, important mission that, you know, law schools are too liberal and uh, law professors have been captured by judicial activism and that the mission of the Fed Federalist Society is that judges should uh, interpret what the law says, not what it should be. You know, that's kind of their mission. But uh, in his application, he got to summarize the mission. And here's how he summarized it. The Federalist Society is an organization of conservative and libertarian attorneys that aims to promote the principles of separation of powers and an independent judiciary. Like, that's awesome. That's in their mission, uh, but he's deciding which parts to put forward. And, you know, I'm sure uh, this person has what it, you know, I'm, I'm sure he uh, believes in the values of independence from what he said, from what he's done in his opinions. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful for that. I, you know, it, it kind of goes to, you know, who knows what judge could Donald Trump select who would be qualified for the Supreme Court who wouldn't believe, you know, in an independent judiciary. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, can I tell you one other uh, Judge Gorsuch fact? Yeah, let's do it. He's in a, uh, he's he's a member of some sort of trout organization. <laughs> like the fish trout? Yeah, the fish, like, you know, to make sure that the trout waterways are open and ready to be fished. <laughs> so. And he has a property uh, that's held, it's a cabin, and it's held in an LLC called Walden LLC. So he, he, is, a, he is an outdoors person. He believes in being outside. Yeah. He believes in the trout. Nice. He believes in uh, reflecting outdoors. So we, I think that that's all you, to be praised. Do you have, you know, he went to Harvard Law, you went to Harvard Law. Do you have any affinity? Like, do you have any rooting interest? Like, you know, when a Aaron Rodgers is in the Super Bowl I'm or in the playoffs, I'm rooting for him as a Cal alum because he's a Cal alum himself. Any legal rooting interest when it comes to Harvard alums, anything like that? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> or like rooting against Yale alums. Or, no, no, no. I, I, um, I, I thought it was interesting how there was some issue uh, about you know whether he overemphasized his uh, his pro bono work. I, I, I'm not putting anything into that. Uh, he uh, associated with an organization called Harvard Defenders, uh, which I did when I was a law student oh, and made me want to be a public defender. Yeah. Uh, among you know a few other experiences. Uh, but uh, and so I thought that was really cool that yeah. you know when the president of the United States is announcing Neil Gorsuch at that press conference, he talked about Harvard defenders, and I was like, yeah, you know, our our club got brought up. Uh, there's some question about how much work he did or how, who remembers him, uh, but it was cool that that was something that he listed as an experience that he had. Um, you know, it it's a it's a club, so there's people who are involved in it in kind of varying levels there are right. people who are kind of there every day there are people who are there just for their office hours there are people who are representing clients uh, you know maybe for one semester or two semesters so that the level of co-op you know kind of involvement varies but it was cool that that came up yeah i'll take it i'll take it i mean someone that has a strand even of of our experience and our work that we do and and that has even a strand of interest in public defense and the protection of the indigent and of our rights, um, I'll, I'll definitely take that as a feather in the cap of a, of a Supreme Court and justice. Yeah, he also listed a prison legal aid project, uh, which Tim Kaine participated in. Okay. And so, it, you know, it's, I, 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 I don't know him, obviously, yeah. I, not, you know, but I, it... He wasn't your classmate? No, no but I kind of, <laughs> I just kind of like a number of things that I've read about him. Same, same. Um, Even the people that have been, I, I've been part of this, these mailing lists that are pro are, are very defense oriented mailing yeah. lists that are that have been trying to come up with anti-Gorsuch sentiment and even in those sentiments it, it doesn't seem very convincing to be anti him um, based on his track record uh, so uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic yeah one thing I read about him uh, and you know I think that he should be asked you know a number of tough questions I, I think he should be asked about emoluments 
if you know if he's talking about original intent right. i think he should be asked about what he thinks about merrick garland being passed over mm-hmm. and held in an unprecedented way you know i think he should be asked those questions sure. i'm a hopeful that we have functioning institutions like i want the supreme court to be the supreme court yeah you know and be able to make decisions that are binding i did read about him and i was kind of like you know happy to read this that he was a, a adjunct law professor or lecturer at uh at colorado right and that he banned uh, laptops oh in his class yeah and some of the best uh, educational experiences i had as a law student were when the professors uh refused to let us have laptops mm. that it, w- it was like a uh, you know, even if you don't want to be distracted and even if you think you can be, you know, optimally efficient with your computer, you wind up having a really rich uh, experience without the laptop. So I thought that yeah, was kind of, you know, I like that. it's totally consistent with him going outside and trout fishing. and Right. Laptops kept me awake during law school. <laughs> I needed to be multitasking uh-huh. in order to stay awake because in college I was falling asleep all the time. That was pre-Wi-Fi in the classroom. Yeah. That's how old I am. And then now, and in law school, I had Wi-Fi in the classroom, and all of a sudden, I was awake. I was like listening. I was engaged, but while at the same time, checking like A's stats or playing poker online, looking for recipes. <laughs> I don't know what recipes. <laughs> all right, we use the internet for different. <laughs> yeah. all, all right. right, I think we've dived deep enough. Yeah. All right, let's do our things. I want you to kick it off, Saturday. Yeah. So Saturday night, Kevin Durant returned to Oklahoma City uh, for the first game back in. Chesapeake Energy Arena, uh, where he was booed vigorously by the Thunder fans. Cupcake, yeah, cupcake, <laughs> cupcake. Yeah, that was. I thought that was pretty insulting to be called the cupcake, especially for someone who had invested like his whole body and soul into that team and arena for nine years. But uh, booed every time he touched the ball, and it got me uh, thinking about a similar experience that I had. When, I'm a huge A's fan, so uh, go back to the pre, the season before Moneyball. Uh, okay. Moneyball team was 2002, uh, the A's. 2001, we had Jason Giambi, uh, who was on the A's. Uh, he took us to the playoffs. He, had, he was a former uh, AL MVP, and we lost to the Yankees that, seri- uh, that season in the playoffs. And then that offseason, he signed with the Yankees. And before signing, though, he was loved by the A's. Beloved. I mean, he was the epitome of the A's at the time. He had the long hair. He had the tattoos. Scrappy. He was scrappy. He hit bombs. You know, he he just he he we loved him. We yeah. he was he was like our beloved son. And he's from California too. And he used to go to the In and Out after the games, and you could go see him. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then his brother was on the A's, Jeremy Giambi. And so the the Giambi name was he was just that whole team was beloved. Yeah, and uh, that so they lose to the Yankees in the playoffs, and and in the off season he signs with the Yankees. He shaves because the Yankees have this rule against facial hair. He cuts his hair and he becomes this completely different person. Yeah, and so fast forward a couple months into that 2002 season, uh, Giambi's coming back to the Coliseum, and I buy tickets for. I'm sitting up in the third deck, but I boo like he can hear me like i i've never booed as much as i have in that game and he went to the rival he went to the rival he went to the team that had just beat us so just like durant durant came to the warriors that had just beaten okc yeah um did you call him a cupcake i did not call him a cupcake (laughs) but i did let some expletives fly i'm pretty sure like i said i was booing from the third deck i mean it was i was i was letting it rip um, so I could relate. That's that's my thing is that I could relate to the OKC fans. I can understand how we we as sports fans invest in ourselves, invest of ourselves in our favorite players, and we hope that they kind of love us back, and then they have that connection with us back. And then when they leave us, especially to leave to a rival, it's it's heartbreaking. It it really hurts. And the way I express my hurt was to boo and to be angry. Um, ultimately the A's actually made the playoffs that year and they had a better, that's the year they won 20 games in a row. Um, but at the same time, so the flip side of that is I listened to the podcast of Bill Simmons and Kevin Durant from last week. So, and he interviewed Kevin Durant for an hour and 15 minutes. And he, uh, Durant said, you know, that's what, when people boo me or when people are booing me or when they wanted me to go back to OKC, that's what they wanted for me, but they're not me. I yeah. have to make a decision for myself. And so now that I look back on Jeremy, I mean, Jason Giambi and even Durant, um, 
you know, at the same time, we as fans need to have that perspective of these gentlemen as human beings. They're, they're not just robots in a uniform for our particular teams. They are human beings. They have life interests. They have things going on in their lives that affect their decisions. And as much as we want them to stay, they are going to have to make decisions that are best for themselves and their families, just like we would in our daily lives when we when we make decisions about our jobs. So my thing is just to share that experience of really empathizing with OKC fans, but also taking a moment to look at Kevin Durant and our athletes as human beings as opposed to just being, like I said, robots in our favorite team's uniform. If only they had podcasts back when Jason Giambi switched teams. <laughs> oh, yeah. You could hear him explain himself. Yeah. I, I feel like the point is like you can empathize with the OKC fans because you've been through what they've been through. Right. But then you can actually empathize with Kevin Durant because you were able to get, get close to him by listening to him talk about his experiences, listening to him talk about where he's coming from, you know, why he made his decision, and really get up close to it in a kind of non-filtered way. Yeah, that's the beauty of these podcasts is that, and also just the social media age, we get real direct access to our players and in a, in a really meaningful way, um, the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, um, Lindsay was, my wife wasn't, um, wasn't super stoked when Katie signed because she really liked the chemistry of the Warriors pre-KD. Yeah. She loved Harrison Barnes. She loved the way that they played. It was the 73-win team. And she's been thrilled with the way they've been playing now, but she's kind of like, you don't have to go do that, right? That right. was kind of the feel. Uh, and uh, then I uh, made her watch, and we cried watching his MVP speech, <laughs> right. where she talks about how mom's the real MVP. That's a beautiful speech. It's, Everyone should watch that. It's, it's so good. I it's actually so good. posted about that speech when he first gave it, um, because he cried during the speech. He told grown men in the audience that he loved them. He talked yeah. about being really insecure and being and needing them, you know, at, in the middle of the night when he's feeling vulnerable. And this is like the MVP of the NBA. Yeah. Really just being bare. It was a really beautiful expression of of a different side of manhood than we're all accustomed to. So I really appreciate that. And that's the thing with Kevin Durant. He's so thoughtful. And so when you listen to him on a podcast and you hear his reasons and his rationale, it's hard to boo the man. I think Steve Kerr said it too um, at the OKC game before the game. He said, um, he said, boo the, boo the player, applaud the man, yeah. uh, which I really liked. Um, so there was a thought I had, but we'll, we'll come back to it. Oh, with, the, with, with Durant, what he said on this podcast is that he didn't even talk about winning championships with the Warriors. Like that wasn't, they asked him like, is this a team that you thought could just take you to the championship because you've been starved for a championship? He said, you know, that wasn't even a thought. He said, I just like these guys. I wanted to play with these guys. He's talking about Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Draymond. He just wanted to have fun. And um, so it's really interesting when you peel the layers back, it's hard to boo, boo the logic. I uh, I want to, uh, my one of my things is Omni Boy's uh, cover of Bad and Bougie. So we're doing shout outs now? No. <laughs> Just to, just to Omni Boy, Omni Boy, shout out, and then, uh, and then the my other thing, which is really quick, is called the Constitutional Rights Foundation. Uh, they uh, sponsor a high school mock trial program. Uh, each year, they put out a case packet which has witness statements, rules of evidence, uh, instructions on certain types of crimes, and kind of a fact pattern. And uh, the students are then uh, they form clubs at their schools. Some of the clubs get school credit. And then they learn about the case, and they learn how to put on a criminal trial in two hours. And so I've been coaching a high school team for the last three years. It's uh, very rewarding work. Uh, we love getting to work with the students and seeing them grow, seeing them build confidence as public speakers. And uh, we've been in the uh, there's a pool play for the first round. We've never made it out of pool play, and this year nice. uh, our team made it out. Nice. Uh, so we're one of the eight teams. Uh, that made it elite uh, eight. Yeah, so we're in the quarterfinals. Nice. So we're in the quarters, and uh, and I'm I'm just so proud of my my students, seeing them grow, seeing them learn how to adjust, because it's not just like a debate. You're 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 dealing with the judge, and you're also dealing with your adversaries. And there's objections. There's closings that have, are based on what the evidence is, 
at trial, there's a motion to suppress at the beginning, right? And that changes the facts. It's pattern. pretty legit lawyering, yeah. Yeah, I, I, every judge so far has said, you know, I'm so impressed with the, uh, this performance. It's better than some of the performances I see in court, and I, it's like the highest praise for these students. And it's, uh, you just get to see them work through the case, build their confidence as speakers, put the case on, really challenge each other, and uh, and so that's my thing is the Constitutional Rights Foundation. Uh, if you haven't uh, scored as a mock trial scorer or you have some opportunity to get involved with your local high school, uh, I highly encourage it. Are they little obvies in the courtroom? Do they do shtick? Do they, are they <laughs> yes. doing like the, more, uh, the arc of justice or the arc of the universe bends towards justice? They, uh, so they don't, they, don't ask, uh, they don't ask for a, a, a verdict at the end. Okay. Uh, they just uh, lay out their argument. Do you tell then... them to tell the judge to let them cut into the apple? <laughs> I haven't done that, um, but cut, they are. Let me cut to the core. You know, the 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 students definitely are reflections of their coaching staffs. Like so, the the DA's team is definitely like, uh, uh, you know, the the people who coach them. The U.S. Attorney's team is like the U.S. Attorney's team, right. and the public defender team, because I coach with some of my colleagues, is certainly you know identifiably a public defender team. So we had one where we put on a prosecution and we were taking on this, um, this other high school that's coached by an assistant U.S. attorney. And I was telling one of my coaches that our prosecution opening was like a defense opening. Right. And their defense opening was like a prosecution opening. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they are, you know, uh, you know, it's coaching, right? Yeah. So Do they walk in with cowboy hats and cowboy boots? No. <laughs> no. Avi's known to be to wear a cowboy hat to the court. They they are boots. yeah they uh, they don't wear the hat. Um, there are no props or disguises allowed, and I wouldn't. If want you guys win violation. the championship, you should you guys should get some hats like as a prizes for your squad. Oh, I think that would be great. They uh, we have little trucker hats that say mock trial on them. That's uh, awesome. But anyway, so thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, that's a wrap on episode three of the Eight or in a Better podcast. Raindrop. Drop top, drop top, smoking no cook in the hot box. Raindrop. Drop top, drop top, smoking no cook in the hot box. Raindrop.